By the time the 18th dynasty began in around 1550 BC, ancient Egypt was already some 1600 years old. With such a vast and rich history, one would think that the Egyptians had, by that time, reached their apex as a people, culture, and civilization. Yet historians often agree that it was around this time, that is, the start of the 18th dynasty, that the land by the Nile achieved its greatest cultural height and political power. For starters, it ushered in what's known as the New Kingdom, the last and greatest of the three main periods in which ancient Egyptian history is divided. This period was also the longest, lasting for a whopping 1200 years before ultimately falling to the Greeks with the establishment of the Ptolemaic dynasty in the turbulent years of the early 4th century BC, following Alexander the Great's death. It was out of this era of major development and prosperity that one of Egypt's greatest rulers would emerge, one whose name has only relatively recently been discovered and finally given its due. As you all know, the monarchs who ruled ancient Egypt were known as pharaohs, great kings, and therefore men, who presided over their empire as they saw fit. Several have gone down in the annals of history for their great deeds and accomplishments, while others have achieved various levels of notoriety based upon the vast array of wealth and riches they left behind. There was the first, Menes, who's famous for uniting the formerly independent kingdoms of Upper and Lower Egypt into a single conglomeration sometime in around 3100 BC. Then there's Akhenaten, the pharaoh who famously forsook the Egyptian pantheon in favor of one god, making him the civilization's first and only monotheistic ruler. And of course, there's Tutankhamun, or simply King Tut, the fabled boy king who died at a young age from a myriad of health problems, and whose tomb, discovered by British archaeologist Howard Carter in 1922, led to a resurgence in public interest in ancient Egypt, as well as sparking a cultural craze throughout the world known as Egyptomania. Behind each of these great men were equally great women, the queens who served alongside their famous husbands and were admired for their beauty, justness, and elegance. One of the most famous queens of ancient Egypt was the one known as Nefertiti, her name meaning the beautiful one has come. Indeed, the queen's role was important, second only to the pharaohs, with certain political and diplomatic privileges. But what if I told you that there were actual female pharaohs who ruled Egypt? Though they were rare and occurred only a handful of times throughout the kingdom's 3,000-year history, there's enough historical evidence to suggest that their legacies left a lasting impression on ancient Egypt and its people. Of them all, perhaps none was as famous or as accomplished as Hatshepsut, who assumed the throne right at the aforementioned turning point in Egypt's long history, when the empire was working towards its great and glory days ahead. Who was this great woman? How did she become pharaoh? And what accomplishments did she achieve in her time as Egypt's ruling monarch? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. About 310 miles, 499 kilometers, south of Cairo, on the shores of a particularly sharp bend in the Nile River, rests the Valley of the Kings. This necropolis, which was built adjacent to the ancient capital of Thebes, served as the official royal burial place for nearly 500 years between the 16th and 11th centuries BC. It was here on a typically hot and dry day in 1903 that famed British archaeologist Howard Carter, the man who would become famous 19 years later for his discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb, happened upon a most fascinating, if curious, discovery. Two female mummies had been unearthed in a site simply known as KV-60. Upon deciphering the hieroglyphic inscriptions on one of the sarcophagi, it was revealed that one of them was the wet nurse to a young princess known as Hatshepsut. The other mummy's identity remained unknown, as there were no markers or inscriptions indicating a name or title of any sort. All that Carter could deduce was that she must have been of royal lineage, as the Valley of the Kings had been reserved solely for those of royal stock and their closest advisors and attendants. 
Fast forward 104 years. In the spring of 2007, Egyptian archaeologist Zahi Hawass returned to KV-60 to retrieve the unidentified mummy discovered by Carter over a century prior. Bringing it to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo for testing, it was revealed that this mummy had a missing tooth, whose placement coincided with the discovery of a tooth in a canopic box that had been unearthed in an ancient Theban necropolis on the western bank of the Nile opposite the modern city of Luxor. Though DNA testing hasn't been carried out, namely because doing so would call for the destruction of said tooth, it's strongly believed that the mummy in question belongs to none other than Hatshepsut herself. While Carter didn't know at the time the weight of his discovery, Further study of both archaeological and historical sources in the 20th century would elevate Hatshepsut to the rank of the most famous of ancient Egypt's handful of female pharaohs. But the question remains, how did she, a woman, achieve this most important and coveted title, which was traditionally reserved for men? For that, we must venture all the way back to her early years. The woman known as Hatshepsut was born in around 1507 BC. The daughter of King Thutmose I and Queen Ahmose, she became queen of Egypt when she married her half-brother, Thutmose II, at the tender age of twelve. As with other queens, known by the honorific title of Great Royal Wife, she was entitled to a fair amount of political power and sway, making various executive decisions as well as performing household duties within the royal palace. The couple soon had their first and only child, a daughter named Neferure, who would one day serve in the high offices of the Egyptian government, as well as oversee religious administration throughout the empire. For reasons unknown to this day, Hatshepsut couldn't have any more children, and thus Thutmose II bore a son through one of his secondary wives, Mutnofret. This child, named Thutmose III, would one day inherit the throne of Egypt, and Hatshepsut adopted the boy as her own. But then, after serving just three years on the throne, Thutmose II died in 1479 BC. With Thutmose III still an infant, and therefore unfit to rule, Hatshepsut began acting as regent in her stepson's place. Six years down the line, however, in 1473 BC, she assumed the full powers of the pharaoh by asserting her lineage as the only child of her father, Thutmose I, and her mother, Ahmose. Her reasons for doing this are unclear, but the possibility of her acting out of her own self-interest has largely been ruled out by historians. Instead, it's believed that political instability following the death of her husband led her to fear the taking of the throne by force from other branches of the royal family. As such, she assumed the role of pharaoh in order to procure the throne for her stepson, who would ultimately succeed her following her death. So it was that she took on the full power of pharaoh, the first woman to do so in Egypt's 3,000-year history, and became only the third woman to win this most coveted position. What did Hatshepsut's reign look like? To begin with, her first order of business was to reinvent her image. After all, she had seemingly come out of nowhere to claim the throne for herself. To win over her constituents, she ordered that her likeness in painting and statuary be portrayed as a man, as if she were just another pharaoh. This included the iconic false beard and headdress, which were the symbols of a reigning monarch, as well as large muscles to symbolize her strength. It's important to note that she wasn't always shown as a man, however. Several sculptures of her have been unearthed dressed in the aforementioned beard and headdress, but with her natural female figure. Still more pieces display her in traditional queenly raiment and garb. Next, she selected her government by choosing her closest supporters to fill key positions. Most important of these was Senenmut, her chief minister, who also served as her closest advisor. To this day, rumors circulate that he may have been the pharaoh's lover, but there's little evidence to support such claims. 
In addition to reinventing herself and making the most of a precarious political situation in the years leading up to her rule, Hatshepsut paved the way for the prosperity that would immortalize ancient Egypt's 18th dynasty for all time. To do this, she re-established an extensive array of trade networks which fell into disuse some 300 years prior, when the Middle Kingdom of Egypt had fallen at the hands of the Hyksos people of West Asia. The Hyksos had conquered Lower Egypt in the 19th century BC, and established a dynasty that would last up until Thutmose I's ascent to the throne. These trade routes connected Egypt with the riches of Punt, a land to the southeast in what's now Eritrea. In the ninth year of her reign, Hatshepsut sent a trade expedition consisting of five ships that accommodated some 200 sailors and rowers to Punt, bearing with them an entire cargo of frankincense and myrrh, which at the time were Egypt's primary exports. A few months later, they returned, having established friendly and diplomatic ties with Queen Ati of Punt. Upon receiving Hatshepsut's gifts, Ati had, in exchange, gifted the delegates with a wide variety of riches, including ivory, gold, ebony, pelts, namely leopard, incense, and, most notably, 31 live myrrh trees, which had been kept in large baskets on the journey home so as not to perish. This was the first attempt in recorded history to transplant foreign trees in another land. Following this trade mission, Hatshepsut also led military campaigns against Nubia, what's now Sudan, to the south, and Canaan, parts of present-day Israel, to the east. While little is known of these missions, it's believed that this was an attempt to extend Egyptian sovereignty, as well as its imperialistic ambitions, though historians agree that her foreign policy was largely peaceful. Hatshepsut's reign also saw the undertaking of several ambitious civic projects, mainly in and around the capital of Thebes. In fact, she commissioned so many construction projects, particularly statuary, that it's said that all museums with Egyptian artifacts in their collections have at least one piece from her time as pharaoh. To give you an idea, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has an entire room dedicated to her statuary. As was the case with most pharaohs, at the height of her rule, she began planning her final resting place, a massive mortuary and memorial temple complex now known as Deir el-Bakhri on the west bank of the Nile opposite the current city of Luxor. Boasting several temples and tombs, it would be, upon its completion, one of the largest and grandest architectural monuments and achievements in ancient Egyptian history. Several of the aforementioned myrrh trees from Punt were to be planted at the site, flanking the walkway that led to its entrance. Following pharaonic tradition, Hatshepsut also had monuments built at the nearby temple of Karnak to immortalize her reign. Hyperbole and self-aggrandizement were integral to said tradition, and Hatshepsut, though a woman, was no exception. The temple, specifically the precinct of Mut, which even at that time was already an ancient site, was lovingly restored after it had sustained heavy damage under the former Hyksos' rule. The statue of the mother goddess Mut was rebuilt and the temple of Karnak was later adorned with wall paintings depicting Hatshepsut's various political, civic, and diplomatic achievements. In addition, she had twin obelisks constructed, the tallest in the world at the time, which would flank the entrance to the temple itself. One still stands, though in Rome, having been relocated there under Emperor Constantius II's reign in AD 357, while the other, still at Karnak, has since toppled and broken in two. Yet another pair of obelisks was commissioned to celebrate her 16th year of rule, but one broke as it was being quarried. This unfinished obelisk remains in ruin at an ancient quarry site in Aswan. A replacement was therefore constructed. But Karnak wasn't the only place to be touched by Hatshepsut's extensive construction plans. Further south in the Minya Governorate of Upper Egypt, the Temple of Paket, a combination of the names of the deities Bast and Sechmet, two lioness war goddesses, was cut into the rocky cliffs on the eastern shores of the Nile. The focal point was a cavernous underground temple complex. 
thought to have been built alongside even older temples that have not survived to the present. The Greeks, upon their conquest of Egypt under Alexander the Great, renamed it Speos Artemidos, after their own goddess Artemis, whose likeness they saw in both Bast and Sechmet. As to be expected, an architrave at the site, a sort of beam that rests atop columns, tells visitors and revelers of Hatshepsut's denunciation of the former Hyksos's dynasties. Of all the marvels the female pharaoh left behind, however, the most impressive and beautiful is unanimously agreed to be the Deir el-Bahri Memorial Temple Complex, which would serve as her final resting place. Though she didn't know it at the time, the structure would one day be the entrance to the fabled Valley of the Kings, where several pharaohs and queens, following her example, would be buried in temples and tombs over the remainder of ancient Egypt's history. The pièce de résistance of this structure is known as the Geser Geseru, or Holy of Holies, and is an impressive colonnaded structure that rests atop several terraces which once displayed lush, verdant gardens. Built nearly a millennium before the Parthenon and Acropolis in ancient Greece, it is one of the high points of ancient Egyptian architecture, and is a testament to the glory and splendor of Hatshepsut's rule. For nearly 22 years, according to ancient sources like the Roman historians Josephus and Africanus, Hatshepsut served as pharaoh of Egypt. Seen, as all pharaohs were, as divine representations of the gods on earth, she wasn't, however, without her health problems. One of her biggest ailments was itchy dry skin, to which doctors and physicians of the day recommended an early type of lotion whose ingredients, now deemed carcinogenic, unknowingly sped up her mortality. As a result of years using said lotion to soothe her dry skin, she likely poisoned herself and developed bone cancer as a result. She passed away in 1458 BC at the age of 50, and was astoundingly mourned by both her family, the court, and her subjects. As per her wishes, she was mummified and buried in the Deir el-Bakri temple complex beside her father's sarcophagus, an act thought to further legitimize her reign, while her stepson, Thutmose III, assumed command of the throne. He would go on to rule Egypt for thirty years, but near the end of his life, he ordered that almost all evidence of his stepmother's reign be erased. It's not clear why he would do such a thing, but historians hypothesize that he could either have been trying to eradicate her example as a powerful female ruler, or close the gap in the dynasty's line of male successors. No one really knows, but these actions are the reason why Hatshepsut was largely forgotten until the early 19th century, when, in 1822, Egyptian scholars were finally able to decipher her name from the hieroglyphic inscriptions on the walls of Deir el-Bakri. Today, Hatshepsut's legacy has been ensured, thanks to the tireless work and efforts of historians and archaeologists who, over the course of nearly 200 years, have been able to shine a light on this formerly mysterious and unheard-of pharaoh. She is now seen as a symbol of female leadership, autonomy, and empowerment, and is the most famous of the handful of female pharaohs who ruled ancient Egypt throughout its 3,000-year history. There's a saying that goes, well-behaved women seldom make history, and had Hatshepsut adhered to the social norms of her day, it's likely we'd never know her name. To borrow a quote from another great from antiquity, Julius Caesar, she came, she saw, and she conquered, not just the people and lands of her own time, but the contemporary imagination as well. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Did you know about Hatshepsut or about female pharaohs in general prior to this? Give me a follow at History Loves Company on Instagram. That's history underscore loves underscore company. And let me know in the comments section of my latest post. If you enjoy learning and would like to ensure weekly history lessons in your inbox, then please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. 
From there, you'll be redirected to three affordable monthly support plans that fit your budget and monetary needs. Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week as we embark on yet another journey to the past right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Thank you.